0: Specialty Story, session number 25. Whether you're a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information you need to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. And welcome back to the Specialty Stories Podcast. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, and today I have a great guest for you. We're going to talk all about academic urology.
1: My name is Peter Steinberg, and I'm a practicing urologist.
0: And are you in an academic or community setting?
1: I'm in an academic practice.
0: What made you choose academic medicine?
1: So the primary reason why I went into academic practice as
0: opposed to a typical
1: community practice, there were two reasons. The first was I wanted to have a more subspecialized focus in my practice than would be available in most community practices, unless you're in a humongous practice. Um, And the second reason was I enjoy working uh, in training residents.
0: Okay. And how long have you been practicing?
1: Uh, Seven years.
0: When did you know you wanted to be a urologist?
1: So I actually started uh, residency training in general surgery, and uh, when I was a resident, most programs required you do two years of general surgery before you go into four years of urology, and I decided during my intern year that I would rather do urology because it was actually the second rotation I did uh, as an intern, and I found it was just better in all regards for me and my personality than general surgery, and I took a little while to get into a urology program, but I actually didn't lose any time. I just kept doing general surgery and did the two required years and then switched. So it actually wasn't until I was already training in another discipline when I realized that.
0: What was it? You said it, it fit you better. What was it that fits you better for urology?
1: So there are a couple of things. I think one was the types of problems that you encounter in urology there's a greater variety of issues than I felt existed in a field like general surgery. At least as a general surgery resident, I felt that the problems we were encountering were often extremely serious, extremely acute, um, and often very, very challenging. Um, and that's certainly an important part of all medical specialties, but urology has a very broad range of problems from, uh, very, very simple and very, um, a non-injurious to people's health and morbidity that can be dealt with as an outpatient to very serious and potentially life-threatening conditions, and everything in between. So I felt that there was a very broad spectrum of different things that we dealt with, um, which was something that I was looking for. Uh, The other thing was the personalities of the people that I noticed in terms of the residents and the attendings. I really thought that they matched my personality a lot better than a lot of the surgeons in terms of having a pretty healthy work-life balance. Good senses of humor, being pretty jovial and collegial, um, and I think that sort of speaks to the nature of the issues they're dealing with. It's a little bit less stressful. Um, plus, the nature of some of the problems, you need to have a bit of a sense of humor to deal with them. I think, um, especially you know, dealing with issues related to you know people's sex lives and, and genitals. So, I think those were the two big things that uh, that made me uh, see this was a better mesh for for my personality.
0: So it's it's interesting the. The things that you brought up as kind of strikes against general surgery, the, the work-life balance, the acuity of the things. And I, I think that's one of the biggest goals of this podcast because you're obviously training in an academic medical center, and I'm assuming an urban academic medical center. Yet the majority of general surgeons out there, out in the community, did you ever get a sense of what community general surgery was like before you went into your residency?
1: Not before I had already committed to switching into urology, I actually did a community general surgery rotation towards the end of my second year as a trainee. I did uh, either three or four months out at a community hospital. Um, and you know, it was a totally different ball game, because it was hernias, gallbladders. I mean, yes, there were some serious issues occasionally, but it was a very different pace than what I was used to seeing at the academic center. Um, I don't think it would have made me change my career plans in retrospect, but it's important to realize that training and practice, you know, the Venn diagram of overlap there can be very small depending on what you're interested in doing. And it's one of the things I always remind med students and residents, you know, whatever job you want in whatever field you're in, you can get it. You know, you can either create it or find it out there. Uh, You may have to look and it may not be where you want to live or you may not get paid what you want or, you know, your your schedule might not be what you want. But whatever you want to construct in the medical field. Someone somewhere will let you practice it. Um, so it was definitely um, eye-opening in terms of seeing this community general surgery practice where uh, they seemed much less stressed. You had people coaching Little League games. They were you know, mainly doing lap coleys and appendectomies and you know, quick procedures, uh, not a lot of complexity. Very different and very eye-opening for me.
0: Okay, good. What traits do you think lead to being a good urologist?
1: So I think that like um, many other disciplines where there's a mix of medicine and surgery, um, such as ear, nose, and throat, I think would be another one that's like this. I think you need to have a couple of different aspects to your personality. I do think you need to have some of that surgeon mentality of seeing problems that can be fixed and dealing with them rapidly and decisively. So I think if you're someone who's racked with indecision, I think that you know that's going to be a little bit tricky. But I do think you also need a little bit of that um, sort of family practice doctor type mentality where you're going to be dealing with people uh, longitudinally, um, where you're going to have to get used to having rapport with people and building some trust and dealing with them over time. For instance, I do a lot of kidney stone work and I do, frankly, a lot of nephrology where you know I'm dealing with people with tinkering medications and their diet and dealing with them over years but also dealing with them acutely when they have surgical issues or uh, say men who have difficulty with sexual dysfunction or how they urinate. That's the kind of thing where you could have a multi-year relationship with someone where you go from doing some basic things to maybe operating on them um, and dealing with them over time, or they get another urologic problem over time. So you need to have a little bit of the longitudinal kind of primary care doctor, um, personality and interest in dealing with the medical side of things, but also some of the traits that go with being a good surgeon in terms of being decisive and knowing when to and when not to operate on people. I think that's a mix. And I think you need a good sense of humor. I mean, I think that helps with everything in life. But in this field, you know, you got to be loose. And, you know, people use slang terms when they come to talk to you. Um, there's a lot of things that if you're not used to, it could be offensive. If you're not used to hearing people talk about things like their sex lives and how they go to the bathroom. So I think you need to have some degree of, um, not taking those things too seriously. Um, or else you're going to have a hard time dealing with just how people describe their chief complaints and their histories, frankly.
0: It sounds very similar to, to our discussion with uh Dr. Leonard and and being a GI doc especially a pediatric GI doc and talking about poop and, and everything else with kids so
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You've just got to, you know, you got to be cool with that stuff because um that's what you're doing. I mean, it's uh you know, people come in and they're, you know, they're going to talk to you about going to the bathroom and um there is a lot of weird stuff that goes around that and you've just got to, <laughs> you know, be loose and um you know, every day uh, I'll hear a new slang term for something that I hadn't heard before, or a euphemism, and uh, you got to be ready for it.
0: So let's let's talk about the patients that come in. What sorts of pathologies, diseases? What are you seeing and treating on a day to day basis?
1: So I think there's a mix. Do you want to know exactly what I do, or what you know, Joe Blow urologist?
0: Let, let's on? talk about um, what what you do a- around general urology. Got it.
1: So, yeah, about two thirds of my practice is kidney stones, which really does fall into general urology. And then a third is straight up what I would consider general urology. And that's going to encompass things such as men with difficulty voiding. I don't see children because Boston Children's Hospital is across the street. But, um, and again, most urologists are going to see either one or the other uh, nowadays. But, um, you know, I see a lot of men with trouble urinating. I see men and women with blood in the urine, either that they're seen grossly or microscopically um i will see men and women with uh men with urinary tract infections in women with recurrent or complex urinary tract infections. Um, and I'll see men for things like elevated PSA or abnormal prostate exam with a concern that they may have prostate cancer um, and other urinary complaints. Um, I tend not to see a lot of women with urinary complaints because I have a colleague who does that. But um, those are the types of things you know that you'll generally be, be dealing with. It's going to be uh, urinary complaints, infections of the urine, blood in the urine, and also uh, pain or complaints related to the penis and the testicles, such as trouble with the foreskin, um, pain in the genitals, pain in the testicles, swelling of the testicle and things like hydroceils and spermatoceles. And that's going to be a big bulk of general urology, uh, everywhere. And if you throw in female incontinence, that's pretty much general urology in a nutshell.
0: Okay. So describe a, a typical day for you being, uh, in a field where it's medicine and surgery. What is does a, a typical day or week look for, look like for you?
1: Sure. So my weeks are um, pretty, pretty typical of most folks. Um, I think that some folks in a very specialized practice may have a majority of operative time versus office time, but most urologists are going to have somewhere between two and four days in the office and then one and two OR days. Um, That's going to be your typical mix. And so normally what I'll do is I'll either have um, a day where I'm in the office in the morning and then in the OR doing a two- or three-hour procedure in the afternoon, or I'm in the office all day where I'm doing a mix of seeing new and returning patients and doing some office procedures such as cystoscopy or endoscopic checks of the bladder, uh, vasectomies, or biopsies of the prostate under ultrasound to rule out prostate cancer. And then I'll have some days where I'll be in the OR all day doing 30 to 60 minute outpatient kidney stone procedures and other endoscopic procedures, and I'll do five or six of those in a day. So um, so my, that's my typical mix. It's sort of um, uh, either office all day, OR all day, or um, a mix of the two. And I think that's pretty typical. I think most people will have uh, have their schedule broken up that way.
0: Being in a surgical subspecialty, what percentage, if you could estimate, what percentage of patients that you see in the office, do you end up taking to the operating room or doing some sort of procedure on?
1: It's, it's actually fairly low. Um, so, you know, I see around 1500 patients a year and I do around 150 or 200 operations. So, and, and keep in mind, I'm, you know, a referral provider for other people sending in complex things. So it's a pretty small percentage of the people that I end up seeing end up getting operated on by me.
0: Okay. Do you have to take a lot of call as a urologist?
1: So um, it's a function of the size of the group that you're in. Um, urology call tends not to be horrendous, uh, frankly, because most of the issues can be readily dealt with by uh, emergency room physicians, frankly, or uh, some basic um, techniques that are that are known to other types of providers. Uh, the group I'm in, there are, there's five of us who take calls, so we're on call basically one weeknight. And we have a larger group of people that we take call with over the weekends. So we're on call about one weekend a quarter. I think that's probably um, a little bit less on the weekend than the average person. But it really depends on the group size. And honestly, I think that most times urologists are on call. If they do get called, they have things they can deal with over the phone um, uh, or have things that if they need to be dealt with emergently are straightforward, such as putting a catheter into someone's bladder or doing a rapid kidney stone procedure or having an emergency scrotal type of procedure they have to do. It's different than something like orthopedic surgery or vascular surgery, um, or general surgery where call is lots of operations and, you know, doing a lot of stuff in the middle of the night. It's very different from that. Um, it's very, very heavily phone, uh, triage based, frankly.
0: Um when you say putting a, a catheter into somebody's bladder, I'm assuming you're <laughs> talking about a suprapubic catheter. Uh, no,
1: no, just uh no. Just a difficult like, you know, one. hmm Yep. Yeah. You'd, you'd be surprised at, um, you know, what we consider difficult, what other providers
0: consider
1: <laughs> difficult is usually not the same, yep. but, um, you know, a lot of people graduate med school without having put a Foley catheter in ever. And, uh, it's, uh, it shows, <laughs> <It's>,
0: uh, <laughs> Yeah, that, that's a discussion for, for a different podcast, the, the lack yes, of, of yes. exposure that some students are getting, but uh, yeah. it's, it's pretty bad. Um, well, it's, it's
1: funny. It, it used to be that urology was actually required rotation at many medical schools back in the 50s and 60s, and um, the American Urologic Association has actually looked into this to look at, they've actually developed a standard curriculum for medical students nationally in terms of things they should know and skills they should learn in medical school because that's not offered uh, as much
0: anymore. Okay. Do you think you have good work life balance if, if there is such a thing? I do. Um,
1: I think I do, yeah. I mean, uh I, I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One, um, I take all my vacation. <laughs> so uh that's one thing. Um number two, um I you know, I actually enjoy going to medical meetings. I know some people don't, but Um, I've found a good way to attend, um, a variety of different meetings each year. I go to three or four of them, which allows me to to get away from work. Um, but our national meeting is usually sometime around May. Our regional meeting is sometime in the fall. Um, the subspecialty meeting I go to is sort of closer to the end of the year. And then I, I like to ski also. So I usually find a ski meeting that I go to in the winter. So, um, on top of just, Going on vacation, I also get away from work to go to meetings and find that relaxing. And then, um, you know, given the fact that um, our call's not that onerous and I'm not on call all that often, um, I, I take good advantage of, um, you know, of my free time and do, and do things that I enjoy, um, skiing, sailing, surfing. Um, I live in Boston, so I walk around a lot. Um, so, yeah, I, I think, I think uh, yes is the answer to that.
0: Good. What does the, the residency training path look like to become a urologist?
1: So urology residencies have increasingly gone to being five-year programs. Uh, In the past, they were a mix of five- and six-year programs. So they generally now include one year of a general surgery internship, where you're just like any other general surgery intern, and then four dedicated years of urology. Um, What's happened increasingly is that uh, more urology trainees are going into fellowship now as a result because a lot of times they're not getting all the skills they want in a particular subspecialty during their sort of undergraduate training. Um, but that's how things um, are, have gone, uh, generally speaking, nationally, is to a five-year program.
0: And how competitive is it to match into urology?
1: Uh, urology is a very competitive field to get into. It's one of the more competitive fields. Uh, there are a couple things that are unique about it. Number one, it has its own separate match. It's not part of the conventional match. So it's one of the early match programs. Um, the way things like ophthalmology and plastic surgery are, um, and it's run by by the American Urologic Association. Um, it's a very competitive field. Um, it's pretty highly sought after now because of the work-life balance that I think a lot of people find within the field. Um, and I think that you're going to find the typical applicant going into urology these days, you know, is a strong... Uh, has a strong resume in terms of academic achievement in college and uh, the basic science part of medical school. Obviously, uh, good marks on uh, rotations like uh, surgery and medicine. Um, Often very good board scores. That's often the screening tool that programs use to pick out who they're going to interview. And I think you're going to find a lot of people have research experience or some other type of unique uh, clinical experience, such as doing an underserved clinic or traveling to the third world to bolster um, their, their resume. And in addition, something that's very critical in matching into urology is doing away rotations at programs that you're highly interested in matching in um, and performing well there. Um, most of these are pretty standard in terms of Uh, competitive programs are used to having students come from other medical schools. um, And, you know, you function like a sub I on the service. And generally speaking, you're graded on a couple of things. Number one is sort of your performance day to day and how affable you are. But most of these programs make you give kind of a big sum up talk at the end of your rotation. And I think that's a big area where uh, you are graded. Um, And I think that most uh, programs pretty heavily weight people's performance On those types of away rotations as far as their rank list goes. Um, And last but not least, I think letters of recommendation go a very long way in this field because it's a small field. There are only so many, you know, training programs and everybody knows when you read a a letter of recommendation, you know, what, you know, John Smith's letter means when he says this student is A, B or C. Um, So I think those are the big things, but I can't emphasize enough the Away rotation component and uh, embellishing your resume beyond having good um, classroom performance and, and clerkship performance. I think that you know your average urology applicant comes in with some other additional um, marks on the CV such as publications, research community service or something like that nowadays, given how competitive it is.
0: You have to cure cancer before you can get in there and treat cancer.
1: <laughs> Sad, but true. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know how I would have done as, you know, an applicant now. Um, I was a, I was a strong medical student, but you know, I played a lot of soccer in med school as my big extra, yep. extracurricular activity. And I, you know, I just don't know where I would have, uh, <laughs> would have fallen in, but, um, but uh, it, it is a pretty competitive field.
0: Yeah, I, I think all of us on, on this side of training now are like, man, I, I don't know if I'd get in these days.
1: Well, exactly. But the flip side is, you know, they have to fill the programs with someone. So maybe it would have worked out. I don't know. <laughs> um,
0: do you see any opportunities or, or I guess any negative bias towards osteopathic um, physicians in urology? You
1: know, it's a very interesting point. So this was a big area of debate about a decade ago. Um, there was a lot of concern at the level of the higher levels of organized urology about things like extending board certification to osteopaths and whatnot. I think that that's mellowed. I think that um, there's been much more embracing of um, uh, osteopaths within the field. Uh, there are some osteopath-specific... Um, programs there that, that are out there. For instance, Michigan State is one. Um, so I don't think there's a huge bias towards it, but I think that uh, most osteopaths still sort of congregate towards a couple of the more osteopath-specific training programs nowadays. I think in the future that will probably improve, uh, but for the time being, I think a lot of osteopaths who go into the field end up in the more osteopath-oriented residency programs.
0: So, Let's let's talk about your program and your colleagues. You're at a, a big academic medical center yep. in, in Boston. Do you have yep. any osteopathic physicians as colleagues? No. Okay. No.
1: And I think that it's somewhat regionalized. I went to medical school in Philadelphia, and so PCOM was around, and we were just, you know, I went to Penn for medical school. We were totally used to having osteopathic colleagues on rotations and as residents in faculty, because there were so many PCOM grads in Philly. You know, I remember the best anesthesia resident I ever worked with was a PCOM grad. Um, and I think it is still somewhat regionalized, frankly, mm-hmm. given the fact that osteopathic schools tend to still be a little bit of a regional, um, uh, I don't phenomenon's not the right word, but they are still a little bit regionalized. Yeah. And I think the training, especially in urology, you know, Philly, Michigan, I think it's still that way to some extent.
0: Okay, makes sense. Yep. As as somebody that, as, as a specialty where a lot of primary care providers are referring to you, speaking to somebody on this podcast that's listening that might not be interested in neurology, but is going into primary care, what can you tell him or her as a future primary care physician, referring to urology, what what can you what advice would you give them to make your job easier to ultimately serve the patient better?
1: Wow, this is, this is exactly what I've wanted to say for about three years, <laughs> so I've been waiting for this moment. There are uh, a couple of things that I think routinely are issues that we see, and a lot of this is actually backed up by data that people have acquired. I think that there is a tremendous reluctance on the part of house officers, and even uh, attending physicians in practice to not do a genitourinary exam, a pelvic exam, or a rectal exam. I think that these are things that we teach this in medical school to the second-year med students here at Harvard. We actually, our whole faculty goes right before Christmas every year, and we do a half-day session on these skills. Uh, And it is remarkable how often we get consulted and there's no documented genitourinary exam in the chart. And same with outpatient referrals. So I think you have to learn how to do those exams. They're not that complicated. Uh, Any urologist would be happy to show you how to do these things if you don't know how. Um, I think that's one thing that's very critical. I think number two, people need some basic skills in medical school or residency to put a Foley catheter in. Um, You're not always going to have a urologist close by where you're going to be. It's not that complicated. Yes, there are times when you do need a urologist to help you do it, and there's certain things to look for there, Um, but I think that's a basic skill that's very important for everyone to learn. And then in terms of diagnostically, I think that it's almost embarrassing how I feel like people have just lost sight of how to do some basic workups of common problems we see, such as hematuria, kidney stones, working up an elevated PSA, a urinary tract infection, just basic things. And... I think if you're confused about the basic workup, especially when it comes to imaging for certain problems, the American Neurologic Association and other associations have tremendous guidelines on how to deal with basic problems like this. Um, so seek the guidelines from some of these subspecialty areas to get some basic information on evaluation of hematuria, evaluation of kidney stones. I mean, we literally get phone calls about, you know, how do you do the imaging for hematuria? And I kind of, Hit myself on the head and say, if you're an internist and don't know how to work up hematuria, what urologic condition do you know how to work up? You know, I say you can manage diabetes and atrial fibrillation, but you don't know how to order a CT urogram. Jeez, you know. um, So those are the basic things, you know, just knowing some basic things about what imaging tests you need, doing a good exam and being able to put a Foley catheter in. I think that would go a long way and honestly would put you at the cream of the crop of internists in terms of dealing with these things.
0: Nice. It's good to know. What other specialties or specialists do you work the closest with?
1: So I'm a little bit unique in that I do a lot of complex kidney stone work, and so I deal with interventional radiologists quite a bit. I think that's true for a lot of urologists who are in a bigger practice. Uh, so interventional radiology and radiology in general is going to be one area where you're going to work very closely together. Another one that you don't think about all that much is actually pathology. Especially if you do a lot of things like prostate biopsies, deal with prostate cancer, bladder cancer, kidney, testis, pathology is going to be absolutely essential to your career. Uh, Those are a couple of big ones. Uh, Medical oncology, obviously. Um, And then to some extent, depending on where you are, um, gynecologic oncology, gynecology, obstetrics, possibly uh, colorectal surgery, those are going to be big colleagues along with nephrology. I think those are going to be the areas where you're going to work very closely with a lot of, uh, a lot of folks, um, much less so than other fields where you work closely with, say, cardiology or something like that. Um, those are the specialists, you know, radiology, pathology, interventional radiology, and people that do pelvic surgery. Those are going to be the big colleagues along with nephrology.
0: Okay. What opportunities are there as a general urologist to subspecialize if one chooses to?
1: so what you're saying once you're in practice to sort of carve out a niche or either carve out a niche
0: or fellowship opportunities
1: sure fellowship opportunities are rampant within the field Uh, some are more competitive than others but there are numerous areas of subspecialization within urology Um, oncology uh, endourology which is kidney stones minimally invasive surgery and robotics Pediatrics, which is a separate board certification now. Basically, if you come out of training and want to do pediatrics now, unless you're in the middle of nowhere, you basically need to be a board-certified pediatric urologist. Female urology and incontinence, voiding dysfunction in men, um, reconstructive urology, which is mainly urethral stricture disease. Um, There are just a ton of opportunities to go into uh, sexual health and sexual dysfunction, um, or andrology is what that's called, male infertility, and doing vasectomy reversal. So there's a variety of areas of subspecialization that you can pursue. In addition, if you go into practice, if your group is big enough, usually people will tend to subspecialize to some extent. Um, And in that setting, even with general urology, just residency training, um, there's tremendous ability to sort of carve out your niches. Hey, I'm the incontinence guy in this group or I'm the kidney stone gal or
0: or whatnot. <laughs> it's like a a, a superpower.
1: <laughs> it is, it is. Hey, it's the incontinence guy. Is.
0: <laughs> is is it urologists or are urologists the ones that are performing gender reassignment surgeries? So that's very interesting.
1: Actually, it's funny. I did residency with someone who then went on to do plastic surgery and actually does this for a living. Um, But generally speaking, um, that's extremely subspecialized. And most of the male to female full reassignment is done by people who are plastic surgeons. There are some urologists out there, who will do male to female surgery because it's less technically demanding and does not require microvascular or microsurgical skill. Um, but that tends to be pretty heavily done by plastic surgeons. There are a few urologists around the country who are involved in that. Um, and certainly, if you did want to get into that as a urologist, there's tremendous opportunity out there to be involved with that. Um, that's a very underserved area without a lot of people with good skills. Mm. And certainly as as a well-trained urologist, especially if you did something like a reconstructive fellowship, I think you would probably immediately have a two-year wait list for for operative patients if you went out into practice, basically. Okay.
0: Are there any special opportunities outside of clinical medicine for urologists? Oh,
1: absolutely. Um, Much like every other field, I think, um, I think there are Ample opportunities to do things that are not direct patient care. They're your basic things, such as you know, research either in an academic setting or uh, in industry. There's tons of innovation that goes on in industry within urology, especially devices for things like kidney stone uh, surgery, robotic surgery, incontinence surgery, but also pharmacologic. Um, work on things like the bladder uh, and the prostate um, and oncology. Um, there's tremendous opportunities obviously in hospital administration, as there are everywhere. Um, there are a lot of leadership opportunities within urology, um, and you can do things such as uh, legislative work, advocacy. We have a political action committee called Europac. There's actually a congressman in Florida um, who's a urologist. Um, there's a lot of work that can be done there, um, and then there's also things such as a consulting to work with um, investment firms to figure out um, would certain areas be good investments. There's the ability uh, to just be a consultant, a typical healthcare consultant. Um, so there's uh, a lot of a lot of uh, varied things that you can do outside of your uh, typical. Um, just, uh, clinical medicine type, uh, type track medical legal work as well. I mean, that's that, that you can be an expert witness, obviously, of course.
0: Yeah. What do you wish you knew about urology before going into it?
1: Well, a couple people in med school told me I should have been a urologist and I just wish I'd listened to them. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, <laughs> I think that's, I think that's the primary thing, uh, that, that I wish I'd been told. Um, cause I honestly have not run into a lot of surprises once I've gone into
0: practice. Okay. What do you like the most about your job?
1: Um, the thing I like most is, um, you know, like I said, I do a lot of kidney stone work. I like taking people who really are uh, feeling unwell or in crummy shape and, and getting them back to normal health. Um, you know, when you see these folks come into the office, you know, uh, a month after you dealt with their kidney stone and their, you know, their hair is combed and they've showered and they're dressed normally and they're on the way to work, it's um, it's, it's uh, pretty remarkable actually.
0: What's the big, biggest kidney stone that you've seen?
1: Oh, I mean, I, I just did one the other day where it was filling the entire guy's kidney.
0: Wow. That's pretty this big. Was,
1: <laughs> it was, yeah, it was big.
0: <laughs> what do you like the least about being a urologist?
1: What do I like the least about it? You know, the thing that I like the least is, I think, a general gripe amongst, um, a lot of physicians, especially employed physicians, I think that um, a lot of the sort of metrics and bureaucracy, I think, are starting to make daily patient care more challenging. And I think the the focus of um, large healthcare organizations, I think, is getting slightly off track from um, patient care and physician empowerment. And I think that's changing actually. I think the pendulum's going to, going to swing a little bit the other way on this, but that's my biggest, uh, biggest gripe. It's not really a urology specific complaint. Um, I, I think it's uh, more of a more universal employed physician complaint. Mm-hmm.
0: Do you see any major changes co- coming to the field of urology, whether it's technology or advancements in, uh, pharmacology?
1: You know, we're sort of ripe for a big breakthrough because when I was a resident in the sort of latter half of the 2000s, we had robotics came online and we had a whole bunch of new systemic therapies for kidney cancer. And these things were all very revolutionary. And we've been in a bit of a drought for the last, I'd say, five, seven, 10 years. And I think we're due for something. I'm not sure where it's going to be. Um, it's not totally clear to me where it is, but we're, we're definitely due. Um, I think the bigger thing that's going on is we're just seeing a sea change in how care is delivered within our specialty in terms of uh, people becoming employed by hospitals, larger groups forming, fewer small practices, fewer people in private practice. Um, I think that consolidation of uh, physicians together, either in big groups or big urology groups, is really the big thing that's been going on. And that's really the biggest change that's going on now is that change in delivery and employment structure, I think.
0: If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a urologist?
1: Yeah. I think if, if, uh, if I did it over again and went to med school again, I would definitely be a urologist, which is what I would do had I to do it over again, yeah. by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, I think this field suits me very well. Um, and I think that people with, uh, my personality and my interests, I think it's, I think it's an excellent choice.
0: What, last words of wisdom do you have for the pre-med possibly interested in urology or the medical student out there that's looking at becoming a urologist?
1: So I think if it's something you want to do, you will find a way to get into it. Um, And if you've got some deficiencies in your application in some ways, it's very easy to make up for problems with say low board scores or some bad rotations. Uh, You can make up with it very easily with a strong research program Um, picking a program where you want to go and becoming a known entity there through research, away rotations, and things like that. Um, Don't be discouraged. Um, I think with some embellishment of your CV um, and being affable and uh, a good team player, I think it's something that's definitely can be achieved if it's what you really want to do.
0: All right, there you have it. Academic urology from an academic urologist talking about what he sees on a day-to-day basis, the types of things that he treats, and most importantly for you, what you should be doing if you are interested in becoming a urologist. I hope this episode was useful for you. If you have any suggestions on future guests, please let me know, ryan at medicalschoolhq.net. I hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here at the Specialty Stories Podcast and Med Ed Media.